easy passages. <laughs> All right, uh, so this week we are in the first part of Mark chapter 10, um, and what Jesus is going to do is he's keep, <clears throat> he's doing what he's continuing to do, which is challenge the thinking of his followers and the people that are watching him. He's going to flip the script and make them reconsider what they value and who they value and why they value it. And we know that in Jesus' kingdom, what he values is quite different than what the world values. Okay, so um, if you're a kid in here, if you're an elementary age kid, last week you guys had your own class during the gathering. Does anyone remember from your gathering what you learned about God? Yeah, Kate. God's ways are upside down. Does that check out, Jen and <laughs> Great. Kiddos, do you have anything else you would add to that? God's ways are upside down. Is that what y'all learned last week? Yeah, what does that mean? Do you remember from last week? Yeah. Yeah, it's upside down. That's great. Does any, any kids have anything else they would add to what y'all learned last week about this upside down God? Yeah, Piper. His ways are good. That's fantastic. I love it. So, kiddos, what you learned last week, we're going to just keep talking about this week. So, as you're listening, you guys can keep track of how many times I say the word God. Let's keep it simple today, okay? Okay, so um, to be a disciple of Jesus, we know that it means to follow the way of Jesus. You know, we use this language a lot, to, uh, to be with Jesus, to be like him, and to do the things that Jesus did. Um, but he never said that it would be easy, and we never say it is going to be easy. We want to follow Jesus, though. The struggle, the tension for us is that we want to follow Jesus in a way that doesn't ask hard things of us. But Mark has shown us over and over this year that the way of Jesus is hard because it's not the way of the world. It's an upside-down kingdom that comes with an upside-down set of values that do not make sense to the world around us. So the verses that we're looking at today, um, they deal with some touchy subjects, right? Subjects that we don't love to talk about. Talking about divorce and wealth and money, um, those can be um, a lot. Those can be lo loaded conversations. And I will say with those things that there is so much nuance within those conversations that we can't easily tease all of that out in a larger conversation like this. And it can also feel really tender or maybe it triggers feelings of shame. Maybe hearing those passages read either trigger th things, uh, feelings of shame or guilt or sadness or regret or frustration. Frustration towards your life or frustration towards God. So before we even dive into any of that, I want to lay a foundation here for us. I want to remind us of a couple of things. I want to remind us that everybody in here, you are loved. You are deeply loved, and you matter. You matter to God. You are loved, and you matter. 
And we know also that Romans 8.1 tells us that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so those are the things I want us to remember as we go through. At any point you're wrestling with scripture, at any point you're dealing with something that is hard or difficult or challenging, remember that you are loved, that you matter, and there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So with that as our foundation, I want to pray that over us real quick. God, I do pray for... um, for anyone that these subjects might bring up um, complicated emotions, I pray that you would just help us to remember that we are deeply loved by you, that you matter, or that we matter to you, and that you see us, and that because of Jesus, we are not in condemnation. That you love us, you see us, and we matter to you. And so I pray that above all else, We would keep that um, hidden in our hearts today. We ask those things in your name. Amen. Okay, so Mark chapter 10 starts off with Jesus. It's this, you know, minor detail that you kind of just glance over as you're reading, but it starts off with Jesus moving from Galilee into Judea. So what's happening here is that moving from Galilee into Judea puts him closer to Jerusalem, which effectively puts him closer to the cross. So that's where he's headed right now. That's what's beginning to happen um, the the further we get into Mark. The pressure is building and the cross is coming. And so what happens is some Pharisees come up to Jesus to test him, and they say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, here's the deal about these Pharisees. They aren't curious. They're not asking from a, um, like a posture of curiosity. They aren't genuinely wanting to know the answer. They're not asking um, because they're desiring to learn more. What this is, is it's a setup. Okay, and this, what they're talking about is this old law that they were familiar with, um, you know, back from the Old Testament that stated that a man could divorce his wife for any reason that he made up. So what they're really trying to do is trap him. And this was a hot-button issue among uh, Jewish people. There were different views held by different rabbis. Um, and so what's going on here is what they think is happening. Um, commentators have... Uh, talk about this is that they think what is happening is that they were near the same place where John the Baptist was when he spoke out against Herod and his infidelity and his broken marriage. Okay, so uh, anybody remember, any kids remember what happens to John the Baptist? He gets his head cut off. It doesn't end well, does it, for him speaking out against Herod and Herod's marriage. So what do you think they're thinking? Okay, well, if we bring up this topic in this part of the area with the hope that whatever Jesus says will land on the ears of Herod, and that will put Jesus in danger. So the Pharisees here, they're not disciples trying to learn. You have to remember they're enemies trying to get Jesus killed. And so what better way to accomplish that plan than to set him up to trap him so that this gets to Herod, and then Herod does the, jo- the job. So that's what's going on right now with this question. And the thing is, Jesus knows this, right? So he does, you know, what he does best is he replies back with a question. And he says, well, what did Moses say? And they say, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. 
Well, he says Moses permits that because of the hardness of their hearts. Their hearts did not desire or delight in the way of the Lord. So what Jesus does in the scriptures, he continues to enforce God's original intent for marriage, that it was not this way from the beginning. That divorce is fundamentally at odds with God's purpose in creation. So then what Jesus does is he takes them back to the garden, right? In scripture, he goes back to the original intent of marriage laid out in Genesis, and he quotes, and he says, marriage within the kingdom of God is this one flesh union of, between man and a woman in a mutual, lifelong relationship. The marriage is defined by God, and it's a covenant underneath God. And so the hope and the expectation is that if a follower of Jesus were to marry, then it would be for life. And why is that the hope, and why is that the expectation? It's because marriage is one of the ways that we image God. It's one of the ways that the image of God, the love and the faithfulness of God, is reflected into the world. So we know um, that divorce is almost always sinful, but in other parts of Scripture, not in, not in Mark, but in other parts of Scripture, Jesus does cite reasons for divorce. He does cite marital unfaithfulness and abandonment. Um, and I want to say, again, there is nuance to this conversation. There is so much nuance to this conversation. But if you are married, <clears throat> love your spouse. Do your best to love your spouse in a way that portrays the gospel. That sacrificial, loving, and faithful. And if you're considering divorce, remember the power of the gospel. Remember God's original intent for marriage. Remember God's heart and longing for reconciliation. And I know that it is easy to hear me and think to yourself, yeah, but you don't understand my marriage. You don't understand. And to that, I would say, you're right. <clears throat> so let people understand. Let someone know what you're enduring or what you're struggling with. We have all been there. We all know what it means to struggle in a marriage. If you have been married, you know what that is like. So let someone know. Let someone know your sin. You don't have to tell everyone, but if you're part of this community, then someone in your community should know. Let people in. Let people pray for you and pray with you. Let people remind you of the power of the gospel, the radical love of God, the possibility of reconciliation. Let people in. Seek the Holy Spirit and pay attention to scripture as you walk down that path. If you're married, have you ever found yourself thinking, what did we get ourselves into? I mean, if you're really honest with yourself, I think most of us probably have had that thought in our marriage before. Of, what did we get ourselves into? <clears throat> or what do you do if your marriage is just bad? You know, it makes you unhappy. You don't like your spouse very much. Maybe you're bored. Maybe you fight a lot, and there is a lot of hurt, and there is a lot of pain. What does the world tell you? The world tells you to move on, start over, you do you. But followers of Jesus live differently. And that means that divorce is most likely not the option on the table. And if it feels like one for you, let's reconsider that. Marriage is hard work, no doubt. 
What does it look like to seek the Lord and ask for help? Go to counseling. Let people know what's going on. Commit to doing the hard work. Daily ask God to do what feels completely impossible to you. Remember his intent for marriage. Ask him to restore and bring joy to your marriage, which is a gift. When we show radical commitment in marriage, we reflect the radical commitment of Christ to his church. God takes marriage so seriously because it reflects his faithful love for his people. And husbands and wives, we are called to submit to each other out of reverence for Christ because Christ submitted himself to death so that we could live. Marriage is a unique unique way to put this kind of love and commitment on display for the world to see. So if you value marriage the way that Jesus does, how does that impact the way that you resolve your next conflict? How does it impact how you will guard and protect your marriage or take a proactive role in strengthening it? And this isn't just on the shoulders of one particular spouse. It's on you as a disciple of Jesus. That's the role, because followers of Jesus live differently. So if you're a disciple of Jesus, how do you then approach your marriage? Some of us might be hanging on to guilt because of our past, or maybe we carry our own hurt or our own deep wounds, depending on how divorce has impacted our lives. And so reading Jesus' words here might stir up feelings of regret or shame. And I want you to remember that there is abundant grace that covers our sins and offers forgiveness. And we can trust that God is sovereign and that he can redeem whatever we bring to him. That there are no exceptions to what God can use for our good and for his glory. That there's no scarlet letter around you if divorce is part of your story. As a child of God, you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and that's what God sees. And as a community here, we desire to be a safe and grace-filled family. So there is no shame or guilt or condemnation if this is part of your story. Jesus never said that following him and participating in kingdom living would be easy. But even in the most intimate parts of our lives, Followers of Jesus live differently. Valuing what Jesus values impacts the choices that we make. Our marriages and our singleness should look different. Both can be hard and beautiful. Both come with equal dignity. And both are gifts in the kingdom of God. So that's a lot. That's a lot to kind of unpack all at once. And again, I know that there's a lot more to that, and these are really great conversations to have with your small group or a couple of people that you know and feel comfortable with. Um, But then what Jesus does is he shifts the focus a bit, starting in verses 13 and 14. And I'll read this part for us out loud. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, and he said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs to the kingdom. For such belongs the kingdom of God. 
he rebukes the disciples because they once again miss it. These disciples, they keep missing it. Jesus places value on the least of these, the people in the margins, the forgotten, the overlooked. The disciples would rather push these kids away as if they weren't important or say, hey, we're having a grown-up conversation right now. You need to go away. You need to be quiet. You need to go on the other side. He's not saying that at all, and I love that about Jesus. We remember that Jesus' economy is totally upside down. You want to be great? Be the least. You want to be first? Be last. You want to be exalted? Then humble yourselves. This is a countercultural life. So I love the image of these children coming to Jesus, this childlike need for him, full of dependence. And I imagine that Jesus is just full of delight in them. And so then what's interesting is we get this completely contrasting image, um, this follow-up of somebody else coming to Jesus in verse 16 about a rich man who asked Jesus, he comes up to him and he says, well, what do I need to do to obtain the eternal life? He was looking for a way to earn the source of eternal life, to earn salvation. And he thought, here's where he gets off base. Man, can we not relate to this? He thought he could earn God's favor. Okay, do good, behave well, that gets us the abundant life. Man, even if we don't say that's what we believe, how often do our actions show that think that's what we believe? Somehow he has earned and bought his way through his life so far. And um, it's somehow, it's not working here. He realizes this isn't going to work for this scenario. So what do I need to do to earn the abundant life? The system is breaking down when it comes to Jesus in his mind. But like, thank goodness, right? Because isn't that such an exhausting way to live, to earn your salvation? Salvation is not from ourselves, and it's not by works. Salvation is not based on merit. It's not based on your personality or your status. Our salvation is not a reward for our good works. No one can be saved by human works. We cannot do enough things to earn God's favor. And that is a relief. That is a picture of freedom. When I wrongly believe that my works can win God's approval, I really just live in a constant performance mode. And I've been having this conversation a lot lately where I'm just noticing, man, the idols that I have created out of productivity because I have somehow believed that I have to earn my value. That's not the way of the kingdom. I never am at peace with what I have done or thinking, have I done enough to please God? That's not a peaceful place. That doesn't bring security. That brings anxiety, and it brings weariness. The gospel means good news, and the good news is that you don't have to try all your life and just hope that you did enough. It's not about what you do or what you don't do, but what Christ already did. And after receiving freely what Jesus has done, the overflow from our hearts and our lives is the good works. So Jesus responds to this man in verse 18, and he says, why do you call me good? And this isn't to say that Jesus isn't good. That's not what Jesus is doing here. What he's doing is he's trying to understand this man's agenda. What are you after here? How are you trying to win me over? And what Jesus does is he lists several commandments. 
of things to do, right? And the man says, I've kept all those. And there's this sweet tenderness that we see in Scripture from Jesus, where he says it looked at him and he loved him. And he says, you still lack one thing. If he's, con- if he's kept these commandments and been so good, here's what's interesting. Think about this man. If he knows that he's kept these commandments and he's been so good, he clearly is still aware that he's missing something. And so Jesus pushes further on him. Sell everything. Give away your possessions. Come and follow me. Because the thing is, it's not about following the law. It's about following Jesus. And finally, what has happened here in this passage is that Jesus has identified the idol in this man's heart. The problem is not that he's rich. It's that riches have him. For this man to enter the kingdom, his life has to be centered around the king. And if we look back and we look all around Scripture and we know um, Jesus' words throughout Scripture and the way he interacts with people, we would know that Jesus didn't often tell people to give everything away and follow me. That's not the thing that he does with every person he interacts with. When he did that, it was either with the disciples So they were not tied down, right? So that they had the complete freedom to be with Jesus and to follow him all around, literally going around, right? Or with this rich man whose possessions had become his idol, his own God. So that's the issue here. And we all have something like that. What is at the center of your life? What is holding you back from serving and following Jesus? What is the thing that makes your heart hesitate? What is the thing that you cannot live life without? And if Jesus tells you to give it up, could you? The rich young man could not handle this idea of surrendering all his things, his lifestyle, his status. We're once again reminded that following Jesus is costly. In verse 22, we learn that the man did not accept Jesus' invitation to follow him, but instead he walked away sad. What he could not give up revealed what he prized the most. It's as if he understood Jesus enough to know that he, he knew he could not have it both ways. He knew he could not have both lives. So the man walks away, and Jesus lets him go. And it probably didn't seem like this at the time, but what this, well, Jesus was trying to do was trying to save him. To those who have much, the demand to become like the least of these may sound harsh. But Jesus didn't see it that way. Read with me uh, what he says, what Jesus says in verses 23 through 25. Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So the thing is, wealth and money and possessions apply to all of us. Right? Money promises a new kingdom, one of comfort and security and pleasure. 
And there's nothing inherently wrong with money or wealth, but it is often a barrier in our relationship with the Lord. It's not the money that's evil, but it's the love of money. It's the godlike status that it, we believe that it gives us. It's tempting to put our faith in our finances. It's tempting to draw trust from our resources rather than the one who is all-sufficient. The, the truth applies to more than just a rich person, though. And it has to, because the term rich person is relative to all of us anyway. This truth applies to anyone who desires to follow Jesus. Money might promise a new kingdom, but it's not the kingdom of God. And I, I resonate, I love this part in the passage where the disciples ask, well, then who can be saved? And that's the point. That's the point. Left to ourselves, no one can be saved. We're all tempted to work our way, to earn our way, to rely on ourselves to be saved. But it's only possible with God, and we need him to do what we cannot do. And we can't hear that enough. And so Peter says what I imagine the rest of the disciples are thinking. He says, we have left everything to follow you. We have left everything. And what Jesus is yet again trying to explain is his kingdom values, saying this is the kingdom of God, that the last will be first, the first will be last. It's not just about selling your stuff. It's about surrendering your life. Jesus says in verse 29, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Leaving houses and property or stuff, yeah, that feels extreme, right? Um, but okay, I can get behind that. I can, I can understand that. But then he goes on and he lists brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and children. You think, what are you talking about here? Jesus isn't just talking about surrendering his, your wealth and your status. He's talking about your whole life. And does this mean to, that it, you are allowed to desert your family, uh, your spouse, and your children? No, obviously not. He's already just taught on marriage and divorce. We've already seen how he values children. So that's obviously not what he's getting at. And this is why it matters. Anytime you're reading something in scripture that feels confusing or hard or you don't really understand what's going on, don't forget the rest of scripture. Remember the character of God. What Jesus is doing right now is he's talking about a matter of priority, of right order. So what comes first? Is it your desires and your life? Or is it the way of Jesus? Whose disciple are you? Jesus is saying that there is a radical reward for your radical surrender. Following Jesus requires surrender, and it's costly, but it's worth the cost. Salvation, 
the abundant life. It is so much more than simply praying a prayer. It is a radical surrender of your life to let go of everything you have so that Jesus is the king that you follow. So the question for all of us is, do you believe that Jesus is worth it? Is he worth surrendering whatever it is that is at the center of your heart? Is he worth living differently for? Is he worth fighting for your marriage? Is he more worthy than your wealth and your possessions? The invitation to follow Jesus stands, but we have to make the choice to surrender. What is Jesus worth to you? And are you willing to live differently for his kingdom? What is he worth to you? I love that this week, you know, we end, we end with communion each week, but um, it feels like, it just feels especially meaningful to me today after thinking on all of this. Because we get to take communion now and remember that we don't come to this table because of anything we have done. We don't come to this meal because of how we have earned the right to be at this meal. We're not excluded because of anything we've done. And we're not invited because of anything we have done. We're invited to this meal because Jesus invites you. With his sacrificial love, he says, come, take and eat. And so right now I want us to do that, to take the bread and dip it into the wine and remember that Jesus because of his great and sacrificial love, invites you to partake in this meal. To remember that it is not about anything you have done or have not done, but what he did for you. So take and eat, and I'll pray for us. God, we thank you for just the reminder of this meal. The reminder that it is because of your great and sacrificial love that we are invited into the abundant life. That it has nothing to do with us, what we earn, how we, um, our status, who we are. Lord, it has nothing to do with that. It is because of your sacrificial love that we are invited to this meal. And Lord, as your disciples, we get to live differently and in a way that reflects your heart and your love to the world around us. Lord, help us to remember that, that even though it is costly, it is worth it, that you are worth it. We love you, Lord. We ask these things in your name. Amen.